It generally says this, an object in motion will remain in motion at the same speed in the same direction unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. Now, when I say an unbalanced force, I don't mean that little family member or friend who's just... Uh, but uh, it means um, an outside force hits a con. In other words, objects will keep doing what they've been doing unless something causes it to change direction. There's a traditional saying that says some people will change when they see the light and other people will only change when they feel the heat. My hope this morning is that we'll be encouraged to change. Um, we're going to be in Colossians 3. So if you have your Bible, then go and open up to Colossians 3. We're going to camp there this morning. Don't start reading ahead of me. I haven't read it yet, so I don't know how this is going to go. I mean, I have, just not lately. Wait, that didn't come out either. No, I, I have. I've been, <laughs> I've been working on this. But, um, well, we're, Colossians uh, is a, is, it was a letter from Paul written to the church at Colossae, which is in, um, in Turkey, about 100 miles away from Ephesus. And, uh, and if you know anything about the way Paul writes, um, you know that, that Paul writes to a group of people based on what that group of people is uh, specifically experiencing. Um, so a lot of people in, um, in the Colossian community, a lot of people in the Colossian church um, have come out of mysticism. And now there's a lot of different uh, ways to look at that. Some people say there is an Egyptian mysticism that kind of made its way in. Uh, some say there is um, Gnosticism, which means that, uh, that the material things of this world are evil and spiritual things are good and they can't really intermingle. So you have to completely leave aside anything material um, in order to really grow um, and do good things uh, spiritually and to, to kind of move that direction. Uh, well, the scripture says that, um, that, of course, God has created everything good and then, of course, it got corrupted. Um, so we're corrupted. Uh, but that doesn't mean that through the work of Christ um, that we can't be changed. As a matter of fact, the redemption of Christ makes it possible for us to become more like Christ. So, uh, so we're going to look at Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Um, so let's go ahead and read that together, okay? It says, Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. For, there, for here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for Paul's wisdom, for your calling on him to write a letter like this to the church at Colossae. While we recognize that they lived in a different time, in a different place, and experienced some of the different things than what we experience, we thank you that your word is timeless. And that what you wrote through Paul to this church was passed around to other churches and was canonized, became part of your word, so that 2,000 years later, we can read this and see ourselves. And we can know that there is something about us that needs to be different. And we thank you that we have been encouraged to focus on what is right and to release other things from our lives. So this morning, as we look at your word, may our hearts be focused on what it is you have to say to us individually. Because this is not a letter to a church of people. It's a letter to individuals within a church. And we stand before you naked. Every part of us inside exposed, as it always is. Knowing that there are things that you need to help us to eliminate, things you call us to get rid of, and things you call us to pick up. So may we be encouraged this morning, yes, challenged, yes, convicted, but not hopeless, encouraged because of your direction and because of your, your partnership with us and your Holy Spirit. And then of your son Jesus, we pray, we thank you. Amen. I've called this message keeping or keep the change. Change is hard, but I'm hoping we can be encouraged by Paul's words here to pursue change and maintain the changes that are being made in us as we partner with God in our own transformation. So, um, so let's look at uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It says, uh, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the first thing that, um, that we need to do is we need to embrace it. We need to embrace what it is that Christ has done for us. We need to embrace the, um, the reality that the work that has to be done in us doesn't come from our efforts. It comes from the work that Christ is already doing in us. He is the one that um, gives us the power. He is the one that calls us to change. And if we will focus on who he is and what he's done for us and what he calls us to do, then we will be empowered to become who he calls us to be. But a lot of times we don't embrace that. 
we white-knuckle our faith, right? All right, we say, okay, I have to give this up, you know? Okay, here I go. Yesterday, Smithfield had their, um, this the uh, first triathlon of the, um, of the 2018 season. And uh, one of Heather's friends posted on Facebook how she did and how miserable cold it was. And, uh, and it brought back my memories of doing that and being miserable. Um, but, um, but it was uh, one of the things that I remember um, about, um, about doing that was it was a little bit all day, every day. Everything it was just a little bit every day, getting out and doing what I had to do. I didn't have to worry about my end goal from the perspective of, um, of racing eventually. I had to worry about training today. I had to train today to be ready when the time came um, for the greater challenges lays ahead. Today, my goal is to um, run three miles or five miles or whatever. Or today, my, my schedule requires that I swim, whether I like it or not, whether it's a good day or a bad day. I have to get up and I have to do what I have to do today. But I only have to do it today. I don't have to worry about, oh man, I can never um, run 25 miles. I'll never be able to do the Boston Marathon. One of the things um, that Lexi is involved in is field hockey, and and uh, and somebody posted on one of the um, the field hockey sites that of the camp that she goes to, or a training center she goes to. Um, they posted a video of. Um, of one of the other goalies doing some work, and she's actually one of Lexi's coaches, and they, um, and it's just her and her coach, the goalie and her coach, and um, and uh, and she's doing her drills. And the quote was very simple, and it's "Champions are made alone." Champions are made alone, and what what it meant was champions aren't made on the Super Bowl field or on the World Series diamond. They're made um, the little bits at a time. They're made by doing repetitive drills when nobody else is around. When they go into the refrigerator to see something that they're, they're going to eat, when they turn down, um, they deny themselves something that they really want because the greater thing um, is, uh, is for them to be prepared today to move forward to what comes next. But they only have to do that one meal at a time, one workout at a time. And a lot of times what we do is we feel like, um, like, okay, here's a great big list of things that I have to drop, the things I have to get rid of, the things I have to change about me. Um, and we don't, uh, we don't focus on what God has called us to do. He's, um, he loves us, and he's, um, he's not only uh, sent his son to die for us, but he sent his son to give us abundant life. And that abundant life is um, transformation into what Christ calls us to do. He has created us to be this kind of person, but we're not there so he has to put to death the old us, the us that we wanted, the us that we made ourselves become, so that he can begin to whittle away all the things that we want for ourselves, so we can become who he actually created us to be. God has created you to be who you are, but not who you are now. So we have to embrace it. So this is, uh, this is where we start off, but we don't start here. It says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above. So this, uh, this chapter begins with the word therefore, or since then, or because. Something similar, depending on what version you have. So it's actually a bridge to the previous chapter. Remember, this was written um, as, uh, as a letter, so um, Paul didn't say verse 1. He wrote it down. He just started writing. 
He wrote what he had to say and put it out there. And for us to be able to find stuff and remember it later on, it became um, chapters and verses for us to be able to go and to find it. Have you ever opened up a, um, a book, something that you had read before, and you go, I know I've seen it here somewhere. And you're flipping through and you're flipping through and you pass it eight or 10 or 12 times. And you put it down and say, oh, I know it's in there. All right, well, um, chapter and verse is supposed to allow us to prevent um, scanning something to find what we're looking for um, so that we know that verse really speaks to me. Colossians 3, 2. So, uh, so that's what we're doing. So um, when Paul is writing this, he didn't start chapter 3, therefore. I want everybody to, um, to listen to what I tell you right now and to remember this every time you read anything in the Bible after today, including today, but also after today. Anytime you start, um, you read a passage or a verse that starts with the word therefore or because of this or since then, stop at the end of that word and go back and read the previous passage. Because that tells you what the word therefore is there for. Have you ever been in a conversation, start off in the middle of the conversation, just walked in and called somebody and said, as a result, what is your friend going to ask? As a result of what? What are you talking about? So let's go back real quick and look at Colossians 2.20 and then read through 3.4 so you can kind of see how this flows a little bit better. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Since then, you have been raised with Christ Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Embrace that part. Embrace that part. Practical Christian living, David Guzik says this, Practical Christian living is built on the foundation of theological truth. Because we know that Jesus was really raised from the dead, then our identification with him becomes real. It is only because we were raised with Christ that we can seek those things which are above. And this is a great quote right here. The only remedy for sinful passions is found in the believer's experience of union with Christ. The only remedy for sinful passions is found in the believer's experience of union with Christ. So the first thing we need to do to change is actually the foundation of everything that comes after, and that is to um, embrace it. Embrace Christ's work in us. To embrace the relationship we have with Jesus. To embrace the union. To hold tight to that. To cling to it. Embrace that. Embrace it. Embrace it. Embrace it. The second thing we need to do is there are some things we have to erase. So embrace it. Then we erase it. Don't erase your relationship with Christ. We're getting into the erase part. Okay, um, in, uh, in chapter, in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Put to death. That's a pretty strong way to say it. Doesn't say stop doing these things. He says put them to death. And if something is dead long enough, it's going to start to stink. If something is dead long enough, it's going to start to stink. And what we're being told is when you put it to death, let it rot away on its own. Don't hide it in a closet somewhere. So, if we have kind of this image of an Old West campfire, some cowboys and dusty Levi's sitting around a campfire after a day on the open range, there's a howl of a coyote, right? A little lonely guitar. And then... The moon is all pretty. Everything is dark except for right around the campfire. And then a cowboy jumps up and cries out in pain. <laughs> Suffering from hot rivet syndrome. Levi's used to be made, Levi's jeans used to be made um, as they were from the first day of Levi's trousers with copper rivets at stress points to provide extra strength. I remember used to be able to, um, to get Levi's with uh, copper rivets, like on the corners of the pockets and where the seams came together and all that kind of stuff. But on the original Levi's, the 501, the crotch rivet, he, the crotch rivet was a critical one. All right? I know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say crotch from the pulpit. All right, but anyway, the crotch rivet was a critical one. When cowboys crouched too long beside the campfire, the rivet grew uncomfortably hot. It is copper, it is a conductor. All right? So for years, the brave men of the West suffered this curious occupational hazard. In 1933, however, Walter Haas, this, uh, the president of Levi Strauss, went camping in his Levi 501s. He was crouched by the crackling campfire in the high Sierras, uh, drinking in the mountain air, and he fell prey to hot rivet syndrome. He consulted with professional wranglers in his party and asked them if they had suffered the same mishap. Um, and they all said, yes, <laughs> yes, we have, very much. And he vowed that that offending rivet must go. And at their next meeting of the board of directors, Levi's voted it into extinction. So what is your hot rivet? What is your hot rivet? What is the thing that burns you? The thing that causes you the most pain, the thing that out of anything else you're dealing with in your life, what is a hot rivet? The thing that you absolutely have to get rid of. Unfortunately for us, our hot rivet isn't the thing that causes us the most pain. Often it's the thing that causes us the most comfort. It's the thing that we hold on to the tightest. We say, well, I just won't crouch by the fire. I'll find another way to sit. I'll start bringing a camp chair. But this isn't the only list that we have. This is who Paul was talking to specifically about things to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, 
evil desires, greed. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, he said, in the life you used to live. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. Don't lie to each other. You know, for some of us, things, we're in the first list a little bit, um, a, a little bit, uh, it's a bigger struggle for us there. Our hot rivets come in the first list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. But for some of us, we're further down. Our hot rivet is anger, or it's rage, or it's malice, or it's slander, or it's filthy language. I have a hot temper, so usually I like to skip over, you know, verse 8. I had to get a new Bible because the other one had a bunch of black lines instead of highlighters. You know what I mean? I'm just kidding. That's not true. No, I didn't do that. Yeah, don't go telling God, I can't believe he did that. No, I didn't, I didn't do that. But sometimes we read through the scripture and we just rather choose, uh, choose parts to skip over, wouldn't we? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I just know they're all up. So, um, but, uh, all right, I'm sorry, that was totally appropriate. Um, but we, we do. For me, um, I have a hot temper. So anger is a big thing for me. Okay, um, that's, that's one, of, one of my hot rivets is my anger. My dad had it. My grandfather had it. I don't know how much further back it goes, um, it goes in that. Uh, but um, rage, because I was small, not so much. Never been violent with that. Um, but malice takes a lot of forms, doesn't it? Malice is doing something intentionally for the, um, for the pain of somebody else. Just for the sake, because they did something to you or said something to you or whatever, so you're going to stick them right back. Um, we were able to go on a, on a vacation this week, went up to, um, to Pennsylvania, up to Hershey, and, and took the kids, so I didn't do a whole lot of anything. That was awesome. But um, I went one morning down to, there was a coffee shop, and, um, and uh, went down there to get some coffee and hot chocolate and stuff like, or not coffee, but hot chocolate, yeah, and uh, muffins and everything to take back because everybody else was asleep. Not me, I got a text at seven. Thank you. Anyway, um, I'm just kidding, as far as you know. Uh, but anyway, um, I, was, uh, I was up, so I went down to get some breakfast, and there was a guy that was in line behind me. And one of the things that um, <laughs> realized we were on vacation in the north, which we'd never done, everybody from the north goes on vacation in the north. And uh, so I, I got to meet a lot of people in here, a lot of accents that I'd, um, that I'd never heard before um, for any length of time, you know. But there was, a, um, there was a guy behind me, um, and he had a son who was, uh, who was maybe 11 or 12. And, uh, and there was a group of, um, of women in front of me um, that were, I, I want to say, from Boston, because I couldn't understand much of what they were saying. I apologize to whoever. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was interesting hearing their conversation going on, and then the people from New Jersey right behind me. And... Uh, and I felt like I was in an, on another planet because I had no concept of what they were saying. But there was a, um, a, a father and son right behind me. And one of the ladies in front of me um, went past them to go and get milk out of the cooler for their kid or whatever. Um, and apparently she just walked right past him. Um, and I heard the father say, um, don't get out of her way. Apparently his son kind of moved over to the side so she'd get past. And his dad pulled him back and he said, don't get out of her way. She didn't say, excuse me. 
And if she comes back and doesn't say it, give her a hip check. So when I talk about anger, my face, I can just feel it getting red. But, um, but there were, we, you know, so I, I don't want to say it, so please don't be offended. I don't want to say that that was a northern thing or whatever. That was, um, that, but I, there are jerks everywhere. Um, but um, just the conversation that they had, one of the things for me was I had such a hard time understanding that people actually teach their kids that. That was, such, that was probably the most foreign thing um, that I heard the whole time that I was there. But I had to control my response because my response inside was no better than his response outside. But each of us has something on this list and other lists that, uh, that Paul puts out there in, um, in Corinthians, things that, um, that are mentioned by, by Christ and Peter and in the book of Hebrews. <laughs> All these different things, we all have things that are on the list that, that we have to be changed by. So, um, so there, the first thing we have to do is we have to um, embrace some things. We have to embrace our relationship with Christ. Next thing is there are things we have to erase. So we embrace things and we erase things. Um, so the third thing we have to do uh, is we have to face some things. So we embrace and we erase and we face. So what kind of things do we have to face? If you haven't been uncomfortable yet, we're about to be. Because, um, he says this, therefore, again, therefore, we already read where it's coming from. Therefore, as a result, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Thomas Akempis says this. He says, be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. Be not angry that you cannot make others as you wish them to be, since you cannot make yourself as you wish to be. Forgiveness is probably the hardest thing that we're taught to practice. And if anybody disagrees with that, I'm fine. I just want to know your secret. But it is. Forgiveness is hard. Um, and uh, and that's one of the things that we're called to do. We're called to, um, to face those who, have, who offend us. And not only to face them, but to forgive them. To bear with them. In other words, understand that this is who somebody is. Understand this is where they are. We don't know what their history is, their background. We don't know where they come from, their family environment, their internal temperament, their personality, um, their traumas, their temptations, their struggles, relationships they've had with people that you remind them of. So we're told bear with them. Bear with doesn't mean tolerate. It means more along the lines of, um, of hanging out and embracing them and understanding that's who they are and then kind of overlooking some things. Um, and, uh, and because God is working on them in a different way than he's working on you. So, uh, so facing somebody, facing um, the, uh, the struggle, facing the relationship challenges, um, and then embracing somebody, um, bearing up with, uh, with who they are um, and forgiving the offense that they have. But how is forgiveness best practice? Um, Forgiveness is best practiced by gentle confrontation. 
I, there have been occasions um, that I didn't know somebody was mad at me, and the first I find out about it is when they say, I forgive you. That's a terrible place to start. It, it really is a terrible place to start, to say, I forgive you, and then walk away. Your stomach may not sink, but, uh, but theirs will. And it says, as God's chosen people, holy, we're holy. We're dearly loved. God loves us despite all that there is about us. God bears with us. And he says, clothe yourselves with compassion. In other words, wear it. Wear it outwardly so that everybody can see your compassion. And wear it all the time with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. And then forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Not everybody that offends you has to be told that they've offended you. If you're in a relationship with somebody that needs to know that, that's fine. But if not, sometimes you have to forgive somebody quietly. But, you, but usually that's a stranger or, um, or somebody that you'll never see again. There's no way to get in contact with them or whatever. Because the reality is, you carry that burden on your own. There's a really, really good chance that you can be angry with somebody, you can refuse to forgive somebody, and you're the one swimming with the backpack of grudge. And they're walking on their merry way. I believe it was Spurgeon who said, um, who said uh, that holding a grudge or refusing to forgive somebody is like drinking a poison and hopes the other person dies. But we do that, don't we? We do that. So we have to, um, so we, we embrace our relationship and unity with Christ. We erase um, our, our immoralities, our, our sins, the things um, that hold us down. Um, and we face our stresses, our strained relationships. We face all of our relationships. We offer forgiveness. We bear with one another. Um, and we do this all in love. Um, Spurgeon also says this. He says, suppose that someone had grievously offended any one of you and that he asked your forgiveness. Do you think you would probably say to him, well, yeah, I forgive you, but I can't forget it. Dear friends, that is a sort of forgiveness with one leg chopped off. It is a lame forgiveness, not worth much. And one of the things we're taught is we're taught that. You can forgive them. You don't have to forget what they did, but you can forgive them. Is that how Christ forgives us, though? It's one thing for God to be unable to forget because he knows and sees everything. But um, when, when God talks about forgetting, the best thing we can do is, um, is to see it from the standpoint of, um, of it's not that he doesn't know or remember that we did it. It's that he doesn't put that in our file anywhere. It's not something that he, um, he holds against us to bring up, says, I'll give you another chance when you get to this point. And you earn that back. Yes, there are things he doesn't call us to because he knows our weak spots. There are things he doesn't do. But, uh, but the scripture gives indications like um, our sin being cast as far as the east is from the west. In other words, they never meet. If you're going to Thailand, yes, you can go west to go east. But, but we're in a circle. <laughs> we're talking about a timeline. Now, um, God says, um, you go this way and your sin is going that way and you'll never see it again. I will never, you'll never pick it back up again and say, 
God, I thought you forgave me for this. You're like, well, I did, but no. He tossed it into um, another thing. Told us he tossed it into the sea of forgetfulness. This floating like a rock down to the bottom of the ocean. I've dropped stuff at the beach and said, well, I'm never going to see that again. Imagine going out to the deepest part of the sea over, um, over, in, over a trench and tying your sin to a rock and dropping it down. Are you ever going to see that again? No, and that's exactly the image that God has for us. He said, I'm not going to dredge it up. I'm not going to pull that back and throw it in your face. And that's the kind of forgiveness that we need to do. The relationship may need restoration. It may be a slow process um, to restore. But the issue isn't us saying, well, I'll forgive you, um, but I can never, ever talk to you again. Maybe you have some work to do. Maybe you have some healing. Maybe it's a long time. Maybe you never will see that person again. Do you need to continue to dive in and, um, and just uh, invest everything? No, not necessarily. But relationships are hard, and forgiveness is hard, and forgetting is hard. And forgetting doesn't mean wiping the memory clean. Um, it means getting to a place where it does not have um, the impact on your relationship. And those are hard, but couples do it all the time. Families do it all the time. But sometimes we're in a family or we, um, part of a, a marriage or part of a relationship where, um, where that is the basis of our relationship. That's the foundation. Is anytime you do something wrong, it throw, you throw it back up again. But the biblical mandate for forgiveness is wiping it out. Wiping out the offense. Doing the best we can to wipe that out. And it's amazing the kind of power that comes um, from moving forward in forgiveness and offering grace to someone else. And unfortunately, I don't have time or a really clear cut say, hey, this is exactly how you make that happen. But I want to let you on, on a little piece of, uh, of insight you may or may not be aware of. Um, the Holy Spirit is great at that kind of stuff. Everything we're talking about starts with setting your hearts on things above. Well, what, do I, what am I supposed to get rid of? What am I supposed to embrace? Who am I supposed to forgive? How am I supposed to do these kind of things? And the answer is this. Um, say, God, how am I supposed to get rid of this? What am I supposed to get rid of? Who am I supposed to forgive? How am I supposed to do this? Because there's things that um, some people can tell you, but nobody can knows you like God does, and nobody can tell you exactly like God does. And his desire is to do that. That is exactly what he wants for you. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us, to know us. He already knows us inside. And we say, what on this list do I need to get rid of? And he may say several things. However, your primary hot rivet is this one. And this is where we're going to start. We're going to focus on this because it will take the longest it will take the most effort, but it's also the thing that gives you the most problem. It drags you down the most. It keeps you 
uh, keeps the joy from you. It keeps you from living abundantly the most. So this is the one primarily going to work on. These other ones will work on them as we go. But this one right here. And he's circling one and saying this is the one we need to focus on. Well, how do I know which one it is? It's the one that bugs you the most. Every time you close your eyes to pray, it's the one that's a flashing yellow neon sign. It's right in your face. It says, eh, eh, and flashes, this is your sin, this is your sin, this is your sin. Why don't I hear from God? Well, what does the sign say? There are lots of things that each of us deals with. But we can get through them. We can work through them. It may take... A relatively short time, it may take a long time. It may may take our whole life. But that's the beauty of the work of the Holy Spirit. He loves you. God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And sometimes that's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? It's hard for us to know just how much God loves us because we can't grasp it. And part of that is because we don't know what that kind of love looks like, what that kind of love feels like. Even as parents and even as spouses, um, we can love with what we say is everything we have, and it's still nowhere close to the amount of love that God has for us. It's a drop in the bucket, and it's a huge bucket. So, um, So there are things that we need to do, but again, change is hard. As people, as I say, when dealing with people with addiction, someone will change when the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the same. You will experience pain as you go through this. You will experience pain as you go through this. But champions experience pain. And we are, um, we are told um, that, uh, that these are things we need to put to death. Putting something to death sometimes involves a fight. It's not always a lethal injection. Most of the time it's a wrestling match, Right? Paul even says out of Romans 7, one of the greatest encouraging verses to me is Paul saying in Romans 7, the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. The things I want to do, I don't do. Now, why is that encouragement? Because that's me all the time. And I'm no Paul. But sometimes we look at somebody like Paul and we, um, we look at, um, at some of the apostles and we see, man, um, how did they do it? And the thing is, Paul's response was, I don't. I don't do it. My evil nature continues to fight. It continues to kick. um, It continues to um, to wrestle against me. Sometimes it pins me. But I keep my eyes focused on Christ. And any victory that I have comes through the work of God in me. And that is, the, um, that is where we need to get to that point. If we're going to keep change, if we're going to maintain change, if we're going to grow, it has to get past the point of us white-knuckling it, trying to wrestle something into submission, um, shove it in a closet, and, uh, and hoping that it doesn't come out. And we need to say, God, what is it in me that you need to fix, and what can I do on my part, my part to make it happen? And a lot of times it's not getting the advice, it's following the advice. A lot of times it's not getting the command, it's being willing to open ourselves up to that, for that command to come true, for that command to become a part of what we do. What do I have to do, God? Get yourself an accountability partner. I can't tell anybody about this. Okay, well, that's step one. I'm not going to tell you step two until you're willing to go and find somebody who will fight with you to take this from you. We need to erase these things from our lives and we need to face the things um, that, uh, that 
cause our relationships to grow. We need to face our stressed and strained relationships and move them. And then therefore, as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Embrace it. Erase it. Face it. And finally, replace it. This is where the big part of encouragement comes in. Yes, it's a challenge. But it's also a blessing. Because he doesn't say, do this. He says, let this happen. Let this be a part of what happens. Starting in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of God, let word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're set up with violent language. Put it to death. <laughs> Put it to death. And then, so he says, stop doing these things, start doing these things, and then let these things happen. Let these things be a part of your life. So we have to replace um, some of our attitudes. Maybe we're not ruled with the peace of Christ. Maybe we're stressed and worried all the time about what everybody else is going to think or how I'm going to get this done or what's going to happen here or what is this person going to say or if I tell them about this and I tell them that I have a problem with them and now I have to go and, um, and, uh, and tell them so we can restore our relationship. How are they going to respond? Is it going to cause a problem in my family or a problem in my church or whatever? How is that going to come across? How is that maintaining peace? And that's the beauty of the work of the Holy Spirit. There are plenty of people that I was terrified that when I told them about um, a crack in our relationship that maybe they did or didn't see, that I've gone to them and said, this really bothered me when this happened. And they're like, really? I am so sorry, I had no idea. Or they were saying, yeah, yeah, I knew about that, um, but I didn't want to say anything. I was kind of hoping it would go away on its own but I'm so glad you said something. And they're ready, but they don't want to be the one to address it either. But there's also been plenty of times when I've gone to apologize to somebody else. And I said, you know what? I didn't even think about it. Or they've said, I said, yeah, that did bother me and I appreciate you apologizing. We get terrified to forgive and we get terrified to admit that we were wrong. Because both of those are going to cause a strain. But change is hard, but it's a great thing for us. It's a great thing for us. This is how we live holy. This is how we become transformed into the image of Christ. So I want to encourage you that if we can hang on um, to who Christ is and what he's done for us and make that the foundation of our lives and the way we, we change, then he will let us know what we need to change as we need to change it. He will show us who we have to have um, who we have to restore relationships with and people we need to forgive and people we need to tolerate and understand and lift up and invite into our lives. He will do all those things for us. We don't have to make the list. God's already got a list. He's already doing that for us. That's what he does. 
But the beautiful thing is he prepares us on our side to take the work he's already integrating into our lives and he will put that in there as we're ready. We may not think we're ready, but he'll know that we're ready. And we say, I can't do that. We can rest assured that if God is giving it to us to do, that he is empowering us to take it and to do it. Do we think about that? Not most of the time. Most of the time, we meet God with objections. As soon as we start praying, or we say we're praying, as soon as we start praying, um, and God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. We're like, no. Mm -mm. Even before he finishes his sentence, no. No, God, I'm not doing that. What else do you have for me? Nothing until you do that. That's what I have for you. But change is hard. But the work of God is what makes it possible. We do things because we've always done them. It's, in, it's ingrained into who we are and how we do things and the way we, we do things. I don't know if you guys knew this. I didn't, I didn't know if I had read this somewhere before or not. But the U.S. standard railroad gauge or the distance between the rails is four foot, eight and a half inches. Who knew that number? Anybody? Of course, Ronnie does. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So why is that such an odd number? Because that's the way they built them in England. So that's the way we do them here. American railroads were built by British expatriates. So why did the English adopt that particular gauge? Because the people who built the pre-railroad trams, trams always used that gauge. They were locked into that gauge because the people who built trams used the same standards and tools they used for building wagons, which were set on a gauge of four feet, eight and a half inches. So why were wagons built to that scale? Because with any other size, the wheels didn't match the old wheel ruts on the roads. Who built those, real, those uh, rutted roads? The Romans. They built them for the benefit of their legions. The roads have been in use ever since the ruts were first made by Roman war chariots. Four foot, eight and a half inches was the width a chariot needed to be to accommodate the rear ends of two war horses. Our trains today run on the same system that the Roman legion's chariot wheels width were um, because uh, that was, instead of somebody saying, you know what, we could probably make this wider or narrower, the easier thing to do is to say, well, I guess we'll just make this this size so we don't have to modify anything else. And we do the same thing in our lives, don't we? Why is it this way? I don't know. It's always been that way. Well, why do you guys open Christmas presents on Christmas Eve? Because my parents open Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. Tradition kind of gets in our way sometimes we get married. Heather and I, fortunately, our family traditions were pretty similar in a lot of ways, different in other, way, other ways. Uh, but some of you married somebody who your Christmas traditions or Easter traditions or whatever were drastically different. You guys had to find a compromise, didn't you? Why do you guys do it this way? People ask, why do you guys go to Cracker Barrel for Thanksgiving? Instead of making a big Thanksgiving dinner. Because we want to. No, because ultimately what it comes down to is when we first got married, we tried a traditional Thanksgiving dinner with just the two of us, and that was a waste of food and money. The next time we tried it with uh, game hens, still a waste of food and money. And then the next year, our third year, um, there was a little restaurant called the Black Eyed Pea. It was, uh, it was right there in the shopping center um, close to our apartments. And they had Thanksgiving dinners for $6 with everything. All right, 12 buck Thanksgiving. We can do that. I mean, we didn't tip. I mean, that's just ridiculous. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. Where do you think the two cents went? 
Um, sorry if you're in the service industry, I apologize. Um, that's not true. But ever since then, we were like, this is nice. This is really nice. So when we go home sometimes, we still have Thanksgiving dinner with, with, um, with Heather's family sometimes, and they still do the big spread. That's fine. But uh, we moved up here. We weren't going to do that anymore. We just go to Cracker Barrel and enjoy ourselves and uh, go back home and go to sleep. So good times for everybody. But, um, but we, we do things the way that we do things because we've always done them that way. And that's a lot of times what makes change so difficult. Get rid of this habit. Drop this perspective. Drop this thing. Do this. And those are things when we don't think that they are a problem for us, it's because it's never been a problem for us as far as we know. But when the Holy Spirit tells us, he says, no, you have to drop this. I have so much better for you um, than this. Uh, then he's going in to replace some things. So, so how do we change for good then? First, we embrace the sufficient work of Christ to redeem us and to empower us to change. Second, we erase our old way of doing things, determining not to be that person anymore. Three, we face the people around us with compassion and strive to restore and maintain relationships with them through the redeeming love of Christ. And four, we replace our old ways with new ways of peace in Christ, building and strengthening relationships and working for the glory of God. A man went to the doctor and the doctor said, you're in terrible shape. You have to do something about it. First, tell your wife to cook more nutritious meals. Stop working like a dog. Inform your wife you're going to make a budget. She needs to stick to that. Have her keep the kids off your back so you can relax. Unless there are some changes like that in your life, you'll probably be dead in a month. Well, doctor, the patient said, this would sound more official coming from you. Could you please call my wife and give her these instructions? <laughs> oh, you're laughing now. When the guy got home, his wife rushed to him. I talked to your doctor. He said you're going to die in a month. Change is hard. Change is hard. We don't want to change, do we? There are things we don't want to let go of. But when we're told to drop some things, we're told to pick up new things, it's for our own benefit, it's for our own good. It really is. And I want to encourage you, if you are a worrier especially, if you think that this is stuff that you have to do on your own, the reality is that if we focus on Christ through prayer and Bible study, and investing in our relationship with Jesus every day, then he will empower us to drop the things he tells us to drop. Because God loves us that much. Some of you are in a position right now where you have a lot that you're trying to carry. And you are, actually all of us are in that position, but some of you, um, the struggle that you have is my first point of embracing your relationship with Christ. And you can't embrace it because you don't have one. Maybe you're white-knuckling all your problems and saying, I'm going to push through it. I'm going to do everything I possibly can. I read self-help books. I have my meditation CDs or DVDs or, um, or my podcast that kind of walks me through it. And I calm myself and I take my walk every day and I do everything I'm supposed to do to keep my health up. But I have no relationship with Christ. And the reality is you can, um, you can get rid of some bad habits just by sheer effort. And that's okay. But there's a lot about us that we can't get rid of on our own. And it is the work of Christ that can make that happen. Not just changing our bad habits, but actually changing your destination. Changing the course of your entire life. This is what we're told. That Christ died for sinners. 
You may say, if I become a Christian, I have to become perfect. No, 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 that's not how it works. The reality is, if you become a follower of Christ, if you become a Christian, you surrender your heart to Christ, then Jesus makes you perfect from a standpoint of your standing with God. But then you'll spend your whole life with Jesus empowering you to become who he's made you to be. And we're all on that journey together. Every one of us. If you don't have a relationship with Christ and you're bearing the weight of the stress of your life and the sin that you carry, even if you don't know what sin, but you feel guilty about some things, then we can help you. There'll be people that are up here that can, um, that can talk with you about, um, about how to let go of that, how God will forget about that. We're gonna go ahead and pray, and here's all I want you to do. The altar is open. You can come, uh, come up here if you want to pray about some things. If you want to make a decision to become a member of Harvest Fellowship or um, to, to get information or possibly um, uh, surrender to Christ and be a part of God's family, we have people that can talk with you through that. If you want to sit in your seat and pray, then you can do that. Or if you want to stand and sing, you're invited to do that. We're going to go ahead and pray. Um, and then the praise team is going to come up and, uh, and lead us in a song. And as they play... You guys, come on up. Father, we thank you so much that not only do you call us to change, but you empower us to change. If we will focus on you, if we will spend our time and our energy investing in our relationship with you, you will let us know in little bits what it is that we need to work on in ourselves, and you'll empower us to do that. What an encouragement for us. But Father, a lot of us choose to try to do this on our own. Those who are um, who are not followers of Christ, and those who are followers. We try to do things on our own. We white-knuckle the things um, that we need to be letting go of. We figure if we try hard enough that we can conquer it. But Father, our role is not the, the main role. Yours is. And if we will surrender and allow you to do your work in us, and if we will say, God, what do you want me to do today, just today? to overcome this or to restore this relationship or forgive this person then Father I will do it just today just for today and every day we will reinvest and reinvest we will be amazed at the change you bring in our lives we have seen it many of us have experienced it and continue to experience it as our lives are changed because of the work of Christ in us. If you'll say yes, Father, I will do what you tell me to do. I'll do what you tell me to do. Father, for those that are here that may not know who you are, prompt them. Prompt them to come up and to speak with somebody who can share with them what great love you have for them, what you have done for them, just like you've, you've done for all of us. And that there is nowhere, nobody too far away that they can't be reached. Nobody has done anything so bad that you don't love them and can forgive them. And Father, you're gracious and loving that way. So take this time to do with it what only you can. We love you. We love you. Amen.